So there's this terrible joke. Uh, it's really tired uh, and bad that I, I keep um, uh, pulling this stunt on, on my daughter, Andy, who's seven. Um, and we'll, we'll be watching a movie, and uh, you know how, it, you know, even in kids' movies that have happy endings, there's always that, that part, that sort of climactic part where it looks like everything's going to be terrible. In fact, maybe even a character's life is in danger, right? And, and I'll, uh, as soon as that moment's happening, I'll just pause the movie and go, well, the end. And um, I did this the, for the first time when she was four, and we were watching um, the Toy Story 3, and if you know the part, you know the part. Um, Reagan didn't find it very funny. Andy did cry. Um, I'm going to pay for the therapy. Like, it's all good. I've got the tab. Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, now, though, like, Andy's gotten so tired of this joke that, like, every time I pause, she was like, oh, dad, just hit play, you know. But I'm still chuckling. Like, it's just, I watched the whole movie just for that moment. Like, that's all I care about. Um, because Andy knows that's, like, not how stories end, not the stories that we let her watch anyways, right? Um, you know, she's not watching Scorsese, right? She's, she's watching uh, Pixar and Disney and these, and, you know, these stories that, yeah, even though they're getting more nuanced uh, today, which I'm actually really grateful for, they still have a generally happy ending in, in the end. And so, you know, she, Dad, this is not the end of the story. And so today we find ourselves coming to the end question mark of the story, the end-ish, maybe? Uh, the beginning of the end <laughs> could be a good way to put it. Um, we've been in this uh, worship series for six weeks now uh, called Broken Glass and Brilliant Light, and we've been taking a look at the six stained glass windows that adorn uh, this worship space, the sanctuary, beginning with the prophecy of Isaiah and now concluding with this window that you'll see now. It sits over my right shoulder every Sunday, and it's an image of the, of the Great Commission and sort of this eternal promise of, of the world that is to come, that, that Jesus invites us, challenges us to make a reality. And if you'll put that, that image on the screen one more time, I just want to uh, draw our attention to a few things. First of all, the, there's the, the beautiful rainbow, and there's a, there's a dove descending with an olive branch representing that kind of Holy Spirit coming to be with us, that, that spirit helper that Jesus promises of. Of course, there's the word love. It's always nice to see. And, and Jesus kind of, uh, you know, hovering. Um, I guess it's, a, it's, a, it's like a kind looming, right? He's very kindly looming over the world there. And then we see, I believe, the cast of Captain Planet um, down below. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's the, I call this the it's a small world window because it's like it looks like every textbook half the textbooks I had growing up it, because they were obsessed with like showing this like international diversity but it was always the exact same very specific cultural references there was always like the Scottish kid in the kilt I don't think they walk around in kilts anymore people and, and there's a, a, an Indian child and then it's very diverse there's like a Russian ballerina and a German boy basically a bunch of Europeans and one South Asian child and a Smurf so you know every Everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome. I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Of course, it's it's meant to represent the way that that we are bound together, and that this is some expansive Christian movement that holds all people. We'll talk about that in a moment. Okay. So, 
Um, this, this window, as I said before, it comes from the story of the Great Commission. It, it, one version of that comes in Matthew chapter 28, at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, which we'll read in just a moment. And it's, this is after the resurrection, after Jesus has done some, some teaching and walking with the disciples. And so he goes up to a mountain. He's going to offer them like his, his final um, challenge, his, his final call uh, to their ministry, what life is supposed to be about now that he's about to ascend in to heaven. And so let's read together, uh, beginning in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. It says this, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Jesus came near and spoke to them, I've received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. For the word of God in scripture and for the word of God among us and for the word of God within us, friends, let us say thanks be to God. So there's these two words in here that we really tend to laser focus on in the Great Commission, make disciples. And what an unclear uh, couple of words, right? Make disciples. It's such an interesting translation. Like, well, what, what does it mean to make a disciple? How do you make a disciple? Do you start with a good beef broth and then add some potatoes and some carrots? You get a stew going. Do you, do you make a disciple from Legos or from bricks or from clay? How, do you, how does one make a disciple, but this is the part that we always focus on. In fact, it's, it's not just here in the Great Commission, it's, it's part of our, it's really the leading part of our uh, mission statement as the United Methodist Church, this denomination to which we belong to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. But then that prompts a question, what does it mean to make disciples? Because I think a lot of churches could interpret that phrase in many different ways ways. I think, quite frankly, a lot of times we interpret make disciples to mean make good churchgoers, right? Make people who are really good at participating in the institution, especially the tithing part. That's the most important piece, right? Make disciples. Isn't there something more to that? Because I don't see Jesus talking much about a church or about an institution in that way. In fact, I think if we look closer at this phrase, make disciples, if we look at the language that Jesus uses around this statement, he's giving us some uh, understanding of what he believes making disciples looks like and feels like, that it's more than simply um, getting people to come down front and to uh, say Jesus' name out loud and sign their name in the membership book and then, good, now they're out of the lake of fire and going to heaven. That's making a disciple. Put one in the scorebook, right? Um, I think there's more to this than that. The first thing I see when I look at this text is I see Jesus saying, therefore, go. <laughs> Therefore, go. Before he says make disciples, he makes clear this isn't going to happen here. Therefore, go. That word go is not just like go down the street, not just like go see your neighbor, go see your cousin Paul up in Galilee, or go see your, your Uncle Tim down in Jerusalem. It's saying go, like journey, travel far away, cross boundaries, cross borders, go. Therefore, go. And then he says make disciples of all nations. That Greek word for all nations is ethnos. For all ethnos. 
And this is a word that had over the, the four decades between Jesus' ascension and when this gospel was written, this word ethnos had come to mean within the Christian community um, basically everybody who was not Jewish. The word we would use today is Gentiles. So essentially, the other 99% of the world, therefore, go. This is not something that is just for the inside crowd. This is not for the people that live down the street from the temple. This is not for the people who already believe themselves to be in the inner circle. This is for literally everybody else. Therefore, go. 99% are waiting on you. Therefore, go. There's this radically expansive and inclusive language that Jesus uses from the get-go as to what he means by making disciples. Disciple-making doesn't mean circling the wagons and getting together all your friends that already believe the same things to sing the songs that we already agree, the, the same lyrics, and to pray the prayers that we already know are praying the same thing and to say, yeah, now we're making disciples. No, you're making a really good club. You're, you're making a really good, you know, uh, culture of, I guess, ideological purity. I don't know that you're making disciples. Something about disciple-making means taking yourself out of the comfort zone, placing yourself in and with people that you don't fully understand, or maybe you thought you did, but you're now having to rethink that, and not through a colonialistic lens that says, ah, oh, aren't you so glad that I'm finally here, but understanding that part of your own discipling means going to be with people that are unlike you. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And then Jesus says that there are really two things that go into this disciple-making process, baptizing and teaching. But he doesn't just say those two words alone. He offers us some more flavor of language there as well. He says baptizing. That's the first thing he tells us to do, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Today, we have many different languages or different words that we use to understand the Trinity. That's what these words are trying to capture, this triune nature of God. These are the classical words. Today, we use words like creator, redeemer, and sustainer. We'll refer to God not just as father, but as also mother or loving parent, right? These metaphors have expanded over time, thanks be to God. But the idea is that we're um, baptizing people in this relational way, and naming is a part of it. I want to pause here and reflect on baptism for a second. Because again, I think the way that we understand this is important because in some Christian traditions, and in fact, just to name the elephant in the room, in a lot of Christian traditions that I know people in this room and watching online come out of as they come into this space and with these people, what this means is like, go and you bring your little pamphlet and you tell them why the Bible is true and then you tell them to pray Jesus into their hearts and they do and then you dunk them in a kiddie pool and then you move on right? You're done. You did it. You made a disciple, right? Go put your tally mark up. God's going to tell you you're a good boy. But I don't know that that's all that baptism is about. If you want to hear more about our theology of baptism, we did a six-week series on baptism back in the fall. Personally, I think the sermons were phenomenal. You can go back and check those out. Um, <laughs> but today, I'll just highlight three things I think go along with baptism. Um, uh, baptism invites three other verbs into our lives. Number one, baptism invites us to be welcoming. Because Jesus says that we, baptism is sort of implied, maybe this is like really rudimentary kind of uh, obvious stuff, but I don't think it needs to be so simple and obvious that, that it takes two to baptize, that, that you don't just go splash water on yourself, but rather someone needs to invite you into the waters. And I think churches can be really good about finding the waters of grace and then saying, actually, you know, the pool's full now, so you just hang out over there, right? 
And Jesus is telling us to uh, adopt this position of, of welcoming, to say, um, yeah, there's room for one more. Come on in. Because the, the second somebody new, somebody different, somebody who challenges the way I understand the body of Christ enters into those waters, it changes me. That's proven true in my life over and over and over again. And I think it's important that churches adopt this, this humble spirit of, of welcoming. It's why, quite frankly, folks who are watching online didn't get to witness this, but before the worship service started, I annoyed the fire out of a lot of people in this room because I asked folks to scooch into the middle of the pews. And some folks were like, sure. And some folks looked me dead in the eyes were like, I'm not moving. You know? And... Um, <laughs> I get it. Not everybody's able to. Not everybody desires to. But the reason I do that is not just because I love making people uncomfortable, but because I hate seeing people uncomfortable in the back of the room when they walk in because it's their first time and they're really nervous already coming to church because I know the kinds of people that come to church here and coming to church makes people nervous. And there's nothing worse than going to a church that you don't know to be around people that you don't know in a place that naturally inspires a spirit of distrust and you look in and it looks like a middle school lunchroom because you're terrified. And you don't know where to sit. And it might sound simple, and it might sound stupid, but it's not. That's, that's one little way that we can practice being a welcoming, hospitable community. Because I know that we are. And yet, as we continue to grow, praise be to God, we're going to have like 20 people join the church later this morning. That's awesome. But you know what? That invites growing pains, right? Growth is not easy. Because at a certain point, you kind of think, well, I've got my people. This feels pretty good. And yet Jesus is constantly challenging us to make room because the 99 are still wondering if there's room for one more. So can we continue to adopt that position, that humble spirit of welcoming, trusting that every time someone steps into those waters of baptism, steps into this community, it changes us for the better. And so as over the years we've continued to expand the waters of baptism to include people of all genders and all races and all ages and all abilities and all identities and all sexualities and the list goes on and on and on, it will continue to and it will make us better as a result. You with me, church? Okay. The second thing it challenges us to do is, is to adopt a position of affirming. Baptism is an affirming act. It's not waters of, of judgment or condemnation, but waters of grace. It's the waters of baptism that Jesus enters into to have his identity affirmed as the Son of God. It's the waters of baptism that Jesus says we step into and we affirm that the name of, of God is triune. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, pick the names that work best for you. They're all metaphors in the end. But it's also the place where we are named, where we are claimed, where we are affirmed and loved exactly as and where we are. Not that the Holy Spirit will leave us there, but ultimately that's the Holy Spirit's work. That's not my job or your job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. All our job in that moment is to say, you are a beloved child and sibling and friend. You are loved. That's the gift of baptism. There are people in this world, the 99, there are pe I know there are people in this world waiting to hear that message, have heard a whole lot of other things from churches that look like this one but may not act like this one, and our job is to continue to offer that affirming word of baptism that says, you are beloved as a child and sibling and friend. Welcome home. Lastly, baptism invites us into a position of covenanting. I don't know that that's a verb, but it is today. I made it up. Covenanting, sure it is. It didn't spell check me, so I think it is. <laughs> Covenanting, it, it, it's this word that means something significant here at AUMC because this is not a place where we expect um, people to sit in the back and not be known. It's also not a place where we expect uh, a people to not care. Um, we're a people that care. You're a people that care. You care a lot. 
You care in, sometimes in really deranged ways, quite frankly. You, you care a lot. But I think that's beautiful. And I think that's something that Jesus wants for us. I think that's something that God desires for us. Because in the very beginning of Scripture, we're told that it's not good for us to be alone. But that's not just about finding a family unit. That's about finding the family that we choose here upon this earth. To hear that good news again and again in word and in action, we are not alone. Some people just need to hear that news. And not just to hear it, but to know it. The waters of baptism invite us to covenant with one another. To say, you are my chosen family. I am going to care so much that it hurts for and with you. I am better because you are here. You are better because I am here. You might not think that's true about me, but it is. We make each other better because of this relationship. And it means that we're not just there for the celebrating and, and holy moments of baptism, but we're there in the doubts. We're there in, in, the, in the dry deserts. We're there in the low valleys. We're there in the valley of the shadow of death. That's what a covenant means. Baptism invites us to welcome, to affirm, and to covenant with each other. That'll take us across boundaries, across borders. That'll send us into the lives of people that we might not have expected. But in the end, we're so grateful for that holy surprise. And so Jesus says, not only do we baptize, but then he says that we, that we teach, teaching them to obey. Not just teaching, but teaching them to obey. And if that word obey doesn't work for you, maybe a better translation of that word could be teaching them to embody. Because what I hear Jesus getting after when he says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you to, is Jesus is saying, we can sit around and we can talk a lot. We're really good at talking in church. I'm talking right now. So much of worship is devoted to talking, is it not? And then we say, well, what do I do next? We'll come to a Bible study and we'll talk and go to a class and, and we'll do some more talking and maybe join a small group and guess what we'll do? We'll talk, you know. And churches are really good at talking, talking, talking. We can talk about love and peace and joy and kindness and gentleness and justice and compassion. We can talk. But Jesus says, I want you to teach them. I want you to talk about this stuff. But with the emphasis on embodying the life and love that I have formed for you. It's really easy to talk, but it's a lot harder to put that love into action. And, and I know that this is not a perfect church. I've said that before, and I'll say it again. I don't believe this is a perfect church. But here's something that I have noticed in my two and a half years here is that this is a courageous church. Because it takes courage to put talk into practice. It takes courage to say, we're not just going to talk about love, but we're going to walk with love outside of these walls. We're not just going to talk about compassion, but we're actually going to go and we're going to serve in the, in the soup kitchen line, but we're going to take it a step further and we're going to go speak to the city council to make that soup kitchen line less long next year. We're not just going to talk about the importance of housing the unhoused. We're actually going to go put warm blankets over their cold bodies, and then we're going to go and talk to the state legislators in Austin to make sure that there is actually housing made affordable and available for the people that need it right that's what teaching them to embody all that jesus has commanded us means it means taking it beyond talk and placing it into courageous action and courageous action means you're not always going to get it right in fact sometimes you're going to fall flat on your face but i don't think jesus is looking for perfect disciples or perfect churches i think he just wants courageous ones i see that when i look out here i see that when i look in that window and notice that Jesus doesn't tell us to obey church doctrine. <laughs> Jesus doesn't command us to obey a, a terms of service agreement that he puts down on paper. Jesus doesn't command us to obey some dude in a robe and stole standing before you and talking every Sunday. Jesus commands us to obey his life and love. 
Now, we discern that together in the community of faith, but ultimately, I think it's helpful to remind us that, that Jesus is calling us to be in that personal relationship with God and to seek that discernment first, rather than looking to a leader or looking to a book of discipline or looking to a church doctrinal statement to be our saving grace, because I just don't think that's the case. And then he offers us this word of hope at the end. He says, I'm going to be with you as he's like floating off to heaven. They're like, this is a confusing statement. <laughs> I'm going to be with you until the end of the present age. What does that mean, Jesus? I can't hear you. I'm sorry. <laughs> the gospel's over now. Figure it out. <laughs> Aren't there times you're like, oh, if we could have gotten like three more lines out of you, that would have been great. Um, it would have saved us a lot of Kirk Cameron movies. Um, <laughs> you know, you know. If you don't, I'm sorry, I don't have time. Um, what does it mean for Jesus to be with us till the end of the present age? I mean, so I, there's a whole nother sermon on the end times that I don't have time for today, um, but I'm going to pull out a, a paint roller and, and paint with really broad brushstrokes to say there's essentially two ways of understanding between now and the end of the present age. And one of them is a relatively baby theology, meaning it, it, it came about within the last like 150 years. And yet for some reason, um, because of the Left Behind series, everybody thinks that's just like standard Christian doctrine, which is this idea of the rapture that our only job, or really it's that one day Jesus will come back and all the good boys and girls that say Jesus's name really clearly and have gotten dunked in the kiddie pool and have their names on file in a church membership and the right kind of churches, it's probably not Methodist churches, um, they get to, they, at least not this Methodist church, they, they, um, <laughs> No, I'm not going to say that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm self-editing on the fly, friends. Um, they're they're going to get to go into heaven, and everybody else gets to go cook in the lake of fire, right? Um, that's, that's one way of understanding what the end looks like. And so then that informs what we do in between. Why is it that some churches are so, um, I, I, I would say, uh, you know, obsessed with uh, trying to get people to say the name of Jesus and dunk them in the kiddie pool and get their names on the tally mark because that's what the mission is pointing towards. And that's a relatively small number of Christians when we're talking on a global and historical scale. Broad swath of Christians, including this congregation, this denomination, what I'll call mainline, mainstream Christianity throughout the ages has believed, is exactly what Jesus says, that Jesus has never left us. We don't need to wait for Jesus to come back. Jesus is, is here. It's the Holy Spirit, that triune God thing. It's confusing, but it works. And, and uh, that this time that we're in right now is not some time where we just sit around and try to get the membership roster as full as possible, but instead it's to co-labor with the Holy Spirit to bring about that new heaven, that new creation, that new earth, so that there is no mourning, there is no death, there is no sadness, but only celebration and praise. We can actually bring that about in this world today, and it's not going to happen tomorrow, it's not going to happen next week, it's not going to happen in my lifetime or your lifetime or your grandkids' lifetime. And if that sounds like bad news, it's not. It's hopeful news Here's the hopeful news, is that when that's the end run that we're looking at, that not that, that God's going to come back and burn this world up and build a new one, but rather that, that God is going to co-labor with us until this earth looks more like the heaven that God designed this earth to be, that means that we've got our work cut out for us. That means that our life could have meaning beyond just growing membership rosters. I mean, trust me, I love a good joining day, but that is not why we are here. It's not. 
Why we are here is to help make sure that this creation, this creation that God loved so much that God was willing to tell this story with it, is worth our work in our lives. And maybe millennia from now, maybe millennia from now, there is a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation, and there are shade trees towering all over the place, more numerous than we could imagine. And maybe each of us was able to plant one seed of grace that no one will ever know or recognize us for, and maybe that's enough. See, the mark of a disciple, I think, is committing our lives to something that is bigger than us, committing our lives to good work that may not ever bear fruit in our own lifetime or our kids' lifetime or our grandkids' lifetime, but committing our lives to the kind of love that Christ did, a love that has a long view, a love that shares the vision of Martin Luther King that the arc of the universe is long, but it does bend towards justice. Somebody say amen. And so, no, that doesn't mean that we get to celebrate every victory that we want, and it also means that we don't stress out about membership rosters, but instead we stress out about the poor and the oppressed. We stress out about the victims of abuse in our neighborhoods and in our cities. We stress out about systems of inequity and inequality. We stress out about the ways that death and sin can still rule over ourselves and our societies. We stress out about those kinds of things because those are the kinds of things that God tells us to care about. So what is our work in the meantime? Jesus says, therefore, go. Therefore, go. Journey, travel, cross boundaries and borders. Go places that you would not otherwise expect to ever be. Be with people that make you uncomfortable. Don't go there as a colonizer. Go there as a listener and a learner. Go there welcoming with waters of baptism, affirming the belovedness of every child you meet, covenanting to care so much that it hurts. Teach and learn and listen so that you might embody the life and love of Christ in such a way that the Holy Spirit could not just work within hearts but within hands and feet as well so that this world could look more like heaven. And it's not going to happen overnight. But my friends, it is worth it. That's something to hope for. Therefore, go. Amen.